Hello, and welcome to Fangraphs Audio, episode 947. To begin this week's show, David Lorla welcomes sports writer Will Carroll, an old co-worker of David's back at Baseball Prospectus over a decade ago. David and Will catch up on things like how the sabermetrics industry has changed baseball and analytics have gone seemingly mainstream. The pair also get into topics like the legend of the mysterious second person to get Tommy John surgery, Bob Melvin managing the Padres and who may replace him in Oakland, and of course, Buster Posey's surprise retirement and his impact on the game. If nothing else, he changed the game. He's the reason we don't blast the catchers anymore. And it took a broken ankle and a lot of uh, pain and rehab on his part to get a rule changed. Uh, And catchers going forward owe him a debt. Just on that alone, I think you should give him a point or two for that. But I cannot imagine him being anything other than a first ballot Hall of Famer. But it's why we wait five years and why I don't have a vote. After that, Ben Clemens and Dan Zimborski get together to chat about the World Series and the end of the regular season. They talk about things like how fun it is when teams defy expectations and projections, and how boring it would be if the projections were always accurate. Ben and Dan also get into how the Braves adjusted to losing Charlie Morton, and just how exciting it was to watch their unlikely run. Yeah, it was a lot of fun to watch this team. The way they reacted, because I was one of the people that, when Acuna went down, I thought this team was dead. I did not see them as having enough depth in the outfield to be able to patch that up. When they acquired Jock Peterson, I thought there would be a good chance that Jock Peterson would be traded again at the trade deadline. But that didn't happen. Uh, Alex Anthopoulos pretty much rebuilt the outfield on the fly. None of these were huge blockbuster acquisitions, but it worked. And we got Jocktober. But before we get to these great segments, I must share my weekly reminder to check out the Fangraphs.com shop. You can check out our great merch, as well as a Fangraphs membership, good for ad-free browsing and helping us keep doing everything we do. The regular season may be over, but we are working all year to bring you analysis and content. Thank you for your help. Enjoy the show. Hey, baseball fans, this is David Lorela. My guest is Will Carroll, whose sports media career includes, among other things, being my colleague at Baseball Prospectus from, I believe it was 2007 to 2010. Will, that seems like a very long time ago. It does. It really does. And, you know, honestly, I thought you had started there earlier. I was there in 2003 through 2009, I think. Time flies, but, you know, it's, it's been kind of crazy. I was just thinking with this news on Buster Posey retiring, back in the day, Baseball Prospectus Radio, I had Buster Posey, even before he had been drafted, he had just been named the Golden Spikes. Uh, I had some friends at Florida State that knew him, and, and, you know, it was one of those, one thing led to another, and he comes on. He was great. He was a nice kid, and now he's, you know, watching the clock until he's a Hall of Famer. So, yeah, time flies, man. Yeah, I think I actually started maybe in like November or December of 2006. I guess I should know that. It's probably in my, my bio. But mm-hmm. but yeah, you mentioned Baseball Prospectus Radio. Looking back at our time together at BP, you know, you, you basically ran that and you had me pitch in a few times. Mm-hmm. And uh, looking back, well, huh, I was actually pretty bad at that. I, I think I'm a, oh, cre- yeah. I'm a credible podcaster uh, today. Yeah, I, you know, I wish... I wish and I don't that those archives hadn't been erased because first there are a lot of great guests. You know, we had a show where we had both Michael Lewis and Billy Bean. That was a pretty cool one. My first guest on the show ever was Peter Gammons and my second was Theo Epstein. So it was obviously uh, very Boston oriented at the start, just fell that way. And, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm sort of glad because I was horrible at it, you know, it, it, it was literally a radio show for the first three years, and then it became a podcast before podcast was even a word. Uh, Adam Curry, the old MTV VJ that kind of created the industry, showed away, and it was, like, amazing. I was like, so I don't have to hit the brakes every 12 minutes. I don't have to wait two minutes. I don't have to fit interviews into certain things because, as you well know, there are people that you want to talk to for – 30 minutes. There are people you want to get out of that interview after five. Uh, So obviously podcasting has gone places we never dreamed of, but uh, good place to say thanks for having me on, Dave. Yeah, it's great to have you on. Well, this has been uh, planned for for a while, at least in in my own brain. Podcasting has changed a lot 
you know, BP predates our time there. I think it was in maybe what, 96? Mm -hmm. I think it started, you know, the whole media landscape is so much different now, even from when we were there, you know, through about 2009, 2010. There are a lot of places to go to get smart baseball content. Granted, there are a lot of places to go to get non-smart baseball content. Well, I, yeah, it's, it's absolutely changed. Now, you know, John Smoltz mentioned Pakoda on last night's World Series broadcast, which is crazy. But yeah, you know, back in the, the 90s when Christina and Randy and Joe and the rest of that crew put everything together, it, it was kind of the, the missing gap when Bill James went away for a while. Uh, and then obviously Bill James comes back, wins a couple World Series rings, and everything sort of from that. Baseball Prospectus was obviously uh, a gap in the market, and then fan graphs and, and, and everything that's come on along the lines. Everything's changed. Podcasts, uh, subscription-based things. When, when Baseball Prospectus first went to subscription, everyone's like, you're crazy. I already pay for the newspaper. And now you know, nobody pays for the newspaper. And something like The Athletic comes up. And goes away, apparently. We've gone through how many business models now? And I think, you know, I've, I've probably got to credit Joe Sheehan for this. You know, people will pay for quality work, and we just have to figure out how to do that. And, and nobody's figured out a sustainable model yet, but uh, hopefully Lady Gaga got it right. With all you need is a thousand, a thousand serious fans, then you can do anything you want. And one of these days I'll get there. Maybe even reach Lady Gaga's status well. No, don't think that's going to happen. But you know, I, I have been thinking about this a lot lately. You know, I've been doing this for 20 years and you start thinking about legacy because one of the defining features of my work is that it's absolutely impermanent. If you don't read it today, it really doesn't matter tomorrow. So things I wrote last month have zero value. Going back and looking at Under the Knives from 2007 might be nice to maybe a researcher but that's it. So for me, it's, it's what is the legacy? And so my legacy is either that I open the doors for some people or work that's not gonna have any value. So I certainly hope uh, that when I look back that people like Derek Rhodes, who's at, at Baseball Prospectus now, people who look at injuries, the fact that people talk about injuries and see the value in what the medical staffs do, and on the other hand, uh, you know, if you were watching the World Series last night, you were watching two teams that have executives that overlap with us at Baseball Prospectus. And James Click, now with the Astros, you've got uh, uh, Jason Perret, who is uh, the assistant general manager of the Braves. You've got Haim Bloom, who's the general manager. Uh, you, you can go to pretty much any team and find somebody. Now, Matt Klein, who worked for me for, for a couple of years at Prospectus, is uh, up for the Mets job, apparently. And so I love seeing those young kids that you, know, you and me helped open the door for. I mean, they would have succeeded anyway. Those guys are all rock stars. But I, I like feeling like I had a little something to do with it. No, for sure. You mentioned you know analytics and broadcasting. It's crazy to me that Prospectus has existed for as long as it has. You know, fan graphs, obviously. Yet you have guys like A-Rod who are doing the, saying these anti-analytic things during the World Series. Mm -hmm. And I, I hate to criticize other people in the media. I certainly, you know, leave myself open for criticism all too often. But I think it's really wrong for the national audience to hear that from somebody of his stature. Tom Brands for him. So the thing that I think we have a problem with is you know, if you look at the list of guys, and one of them I shouldn't leave off the list is Dave Haller, who's the PR director for uh, the Tampa Bay Rays. And there, there's a ton of guys, I'm leaving off here, who've gone on to success outside baseball in some situations. You know, we've done a great job at convincing front offices of what analytics does, you know, whether it's baseball perspectives, fan graphs, uh, baseball reference. <laughs> Somebody saw was talking about total baseball Remember the, the book, kind of the successor to the baseball encyclopedia? Somebody saw one and was like, what the heck is that? And I was like, before baseball reference, we had to carry these around. And it only updated once a year. And it didn't have all the same information. So, yes, I'm old. I think, going back to the analytics, I don't think what all the, the analytics community, the analytics industry, whatever you want to call it, 
hasn't done a very good job of is marketing. You know, it's still a tiny niche audience that wants to read about analytics. Obviously successful beyond the wildest dreams of, of most, but I've had a career, you've had a career. But if you walked into, let's say, a major, let's say you, were, you walked into the, the Braves World Series Parade and you asked 100 people what, I don't know, OPS is. How many people do you think are actually going to be able to answer that question intelligently? My, my guess is somewhere in the 30s, maybe a little bit lower. That's a very hard question to answer. And I think it would be for a lot of people who do what we do, because we are so enmeshed in it, we assume that maybe most people do. So unless I am at my local pub and baseball comes up and I'm talking to strangers, I really don't have a good, good grasp of that. Yeah, but I, I think it's much lower than, you know, us in the echo chamber who are, are thinking about, you know, fantasy and gambling and, and now we got to think about those things. I just don't think there are many announcers out there. There are some. I mean, uh, when, when ESPN does StatCast, it's great. And I think what baseball needs to do is expand that. Get more guys like John Shambi. Get more guys like Jason Benetti and Len Casper. Get more guys like Don Arcillo, who does a great job working things in and kind of explaining what it means or explaining kind of the thought process. Those, I watched a lot of Padres games these last couple of years, and Orsillo is just so good at weaving a storyline. He's not necessarily going to do the math, but just so good at, you know, this is what's happening now. This is why. Why are they shifting on this hitter in this situation? Why did they go to this reliever instead of that one? It, it's, it's absolute masterwork. I, I, I watch the games as much for him as I do for Tatis and Machado. But I think that's where it's been. You know, we have, who, who was on the panel last night? I mean, Kevin Burkhart does a great job. But, you know, you've got Alex Rodriguez, you've got David Ortiz, and you've got Frank Thomas. They're all great baseball players. They don't need to know about analytics. You would think that Alex Rodriguez, who styled himself as this great investor, could at least run the numbers, but he's got somebody else doing that for him. All he is is a, an empty suit. So it doesn't surprise me that he's saying stupid things. The question is, as we move forward, you know, Alex Rodriguez came up, in, all of those guys, came up in an era before analytics were really even discussed widely. So is the next generation that has been exposed to this the whole time, uh, there are players now that have grown up reading fan graphs. So are, are we going to have a better quality of player commentator in 10 years? I think so. We're already starting to see that. Doug Glanville, he's smarter than the average bear to begin with, but he does a good job. I think Jimmy Rollins, who was on TBS's coverage. I think Pedro Martinez does a very good job of explaining pitching, given that you know English isn't his first language, is even more amazing. Uh, he, he just does a great job explaining pitching. Again, not really analytics, but I think it, it's going to be a generational turnover, which is frustrating for those of us that have to live through A-Rod now. And with great players and analytics in mind, you mentioned how the, the Buster Posey news broke today. You know, we're speaking uh, early in the evening on Wednesday. Buster Posey finished his career, if I recall reading this correctly, with 1,500 hits. Do you think that if this was a generation ago that he would go into the Hall of Fame with that total and no analytics? You know, it's tough because he's a catcher. And when I think of the great catchers, I mean, I'm going to miss some. I mean, we could go back to you know, Mickey Cochran or something like that. Uh, you've got, basically, you've got Yogi Berra and everybody else. And so if you're talking about, you know, super greats, the two names that immediately come up to me are Roy Campanella and Thurman Munson, two absolute greats who had their careers cut short. Posey didn't. There were some missed years. Everybody's going to have that 2020 you know, gap in their record. And I think that one's going to be more consequential than we think. I think 10, 15 years from now, when somebody comes up with 598 home runs or 498 home runs or you know, 2,900 hits, people are going to say, oh, what if they played the whole season in 2020? And that's going to get factored in. So I think Posey is a no-doubter. In the same way that we're going to have to take a hard look at Joe Maurer's career, where we don't have those round numbers 
that we normally think of. There's 300 wins is likely to go away for a generation before we recalibrate that. 300 wins is going to be tough. Those kind of numbers just, again, generational change. So I think Posey would be just because, you know, three titles, MVP. A lot of people thought of him, if you go, again, Bill James, if you go back to the Bill James questions, was he the best catcher in the game? And I think for a period of time, it's certainly arguable. There's not that many great catchers at all. And the fact that he, if nothing else, he changed the game. He's the reason we don't blast the catchers anymore. And it took a broken ankle and a lot of uh, pain and rehab on his part to get a rule changed. Uh, And catchers going forward owe him a debt. Just on that alone, I think you should give him a point or two for that. But I cannot imagine him being anything other than a first ballot Hall of Famer. But it's why we wait five years and why I don't have a vote. Well, I think that a fellow by the name of Tommy John has a lot to do with changing the game and maybe belongs in the Hall. Absolutely. Along with the, what is it, 290 wins, maybe 288 yeah. or something? Yeah, absolutely. You know, there's this new committee. I forget which committee it was, but, you know, there are people. Let, let's just take, you know, everybody over the last couple of days had, is Dusty Baker a Hall of Fame manager? I think the answer is yes. But here's the thing. He was also a pretty darn good player. Hall of Fame? No, but pretty darn good. So if you add those two things together, does that make him a Hall of Famer? Yeah, well, I I think he gets in just on the managing. Do you even mention the fact that he was a a hitter? If you take a guy like Buck O'Neill, who I think is the most outrageous non-player that's left out of the Hall of Fame, you can take a look at it. Buck O'Neill was a great player. Buck O'Neill was a great scout. Buck O'Neill was a great ambassador for the game, but there's no category for that. There ought to be, you know, some kind of baseball life award where, you know, lifetime achievement, the, what you meant to the game of baseball and the, the soul of baseball to steal Joe Posnanski's phrase. Absolutely. I think Dusty Baker factors into that. And I think, you know, it'll be interesting to see what's next for Buster Posey. Does he, is he a coach? You know, you always hear catchers talked about as, as managers. And I can't remember anybody ever talking about Posey as a like future manager the way they did about guys like Brad Osmus. Yeah, I think Posey's name may have come up uh, some years ago when I polled a bunch of people in baseball about players mm-hmm. who are future managers. You know, Joe Torre uh, fits the, the Baker example that you gave very well. Mm-hmm. Is, is before he got in as a manager, if you look at the career he had as a player, which is better than Baker's. Yeah. Yeah, very, very good player. He should, there should be an award, I agree, for contributions to the, to the game. Yeah, and yeah, there's a whole bunch of people, you know, scouts. Scouts should get more of a, a look. And, and doctors, why is, <laughs> you know, we talk about Tommy John. Why, why is Frank Job not in there? Why is Jim Andrews not already in there? Uh, so there, there's just tons of people. Uh, they could build a whole nother wing uh, in, in, the, in the Hall of Fame. For sure. And coaches as well. Brent Strom uh, just announced that, yeah. he will, that he will not return to the Astros and quite probably will is done with professional baseball. Yeah, he's, he has retired. I would not be stunned to see him come back in some role. You know, if, if you know, spring training instructor, kind of special assistant who ends up being a functional pitching coordinator. Brent is just too smart and too involved to, to totally walk away. But then again, I was thinking about this today. Would someone like Brent Strom be the kind of instructor we need to push pitching instruction forward? Could he become, uh, like Tom House is, kind of the face of a generation of coaches? I think that would have to be an interesting thing for Brent as well. Right. And Brent, of course, being the second player to get Tommy John surgery. The third. Third. The third. He's the second baseball player. Here, here's one of my holy grails, Dave. The first, of course, was Tommy John himself. Uh, Brent Strom was the second uh, baseball player. And it was like, I want to say three years later. But in between, there was a Russian javelin thrower. And I did an article, uh, actually a series of articles with Frank Job that ended up being one of the last interviews he did. And amazing stuff, he said. But he actually couldn't remember the guy's name. And I've gone back to Curlin Job. I've dug for years trying to find out who that second guy was. Do you know who the fourth was, the third baseball player? I do not know. Tom Candiotti. Yeah, and was he a knuckleballer already? 
He was not. And, and Job told me he, he was a minor leaguer at the time, and he did throw a knuckleball, but not not like he did. Uh, he'd, he'd never committed to it, really. It was just one of those things he toyed around with and would occasionally throw as a goof because he was a really good pitcher ahead of it. But he injured his arm, and Frank brought him in. He goes, hey, I think you have the same injury that Tommy John had. We could do the surgery. But what? it's a long process. You might not come back from it. Are you a good prospect? And Candiotti obviously said yes. And so Frank did the surgery. And years later, he came back. And when he was with the Dodgers, gave him a, a signed headshot that said, I'll always be your best prospect, Candiotti. So there's my Frank Job story. Your Tom Candiotti story. Yeah, let's jump, uh, Will, to back to the news of the day. Smaller news, of course, than the Posey retirement or even the Brent Strom. But uh, the Reds traded Tucker Barnhart to the Tigers for a prospect today. Barnhart, of course, being an Indianapolis native, which is where, where you are located. Mm -hmm. Indianapolis being pretty close to Cincinnati. So what is your take on what the Cincinnati Reds appear to be doing? Well, with with Barnhart, I think it's just a, a situation where, you know, they've got some catchers in the organization. They're, I'll, I'll be honest, I have no idea what the, the Reds are doing overall. They've gotten rid of a lot of good people. Uh, some good people have left. They've brought in some good people. But, you know, I don't know where this team is going. Normally, one of the things I try to do every spring training is take a look at a team. And I said, okay, if, if I could articulate what they're doing, what their plan is in one sentence, what would it be? And with the Reds right now, I've got no idea. Are they rebuilding? Are they you know, retooling? Obviously what they're doing didn't work, but you have a Cardinals team, which is similarly confusing, but more talented. You've got a Brewers team that could be absolutely dominant for the next three, four years before some of those pitchers get really expensive. And you've got a Pirates team that's just been flailing for the better part of two decades. You know, they, they had, what, one playoff run there in Neil Huntington's tenure. So we'll see where that goes. But I, I just don't get the Reds. Yeah, Barnhart's a player that, yeah, I remember him as a 12-year-old in, in the Little League World Series run that they had. They had a lot of great players. Lance Lynn's still around. Drew Storen isn't playing anymore, but, you know, not that far removed. But that was one heck of a program they had in suburban Indianapolis, a town called Brownsburg. And so we'll see what Barnhart does. I think it's a good pickup for the Tigers. Catchers are obviously something that uh, with Posey, how many great catchers do we have? And then beyond that, how far are we from the robo-umps? And at that stage, does catcher framing mean anything? Which I, which I think, no, we'll get back to catchers who can slug. And if they can just sort of squat back there and catch the ball occasionally, that's fine. Because I think they're going to incentivize steals so much that catch and throw is going to be undervalued. So uh, I think we're going to get a whole bunch of uh, Hector Villanuevas, if anybody remembers <laughs> that guy. Yes. And we, that is definitely something we could get in the weeds on if we wanted. But let's jump to the fact that Barnhart is a huge Indianapolis Colts fan. Mm -hmm. Another piece of news today that I saw is that Tom Matty, the Baltimore Colts running back throughout the 60s and into the 70s, actually has died. Yeah. Matty, which I'm pretty certain that you know well, ended up uh, starting at quarterback for, I think it was three games, maybe in 1965 or 66, because Johnny Unitas was hurt, as was mm -hmm. uh, the backup. Another piece of news that came out today was uh, Aaron Rodgers. So the Packers are uh, without their quarterback. Your thoughts on what happened there? Yeah, that's just a mess. You know, we got a number of quarterbacks, including the Colts quarterback, Carson Wentz, who are unvaccinated. At least Wentz and, and you know, Kirk Cousins, there are a couple others. I'm not sure why it's quarterbacks. Is it just because they're white and privileged most of the time? It, it's, it's a situation where they, they at least owned it. They came forward and said, I'm not. Here's why, you know, it, it appears that Rogers was like, you know, if he didn't flat out lie, he certainly obfuscated. It shouldn't surprise us. You know, he, he's, he's an alternative kind of guy to begin with. So I wasn't stunned by the news that he was unvaccinated, but hey, that's, that's his choice, I guess. And now he's paying the consequences. I, I'm curious to see if there will be any. Was he deceiving the league? Did the team know? 
if the team knew, you know, he wasn't wearing a mask at press conferences. So there was some question as to whether that was a violation. Was he in team meetings without a mask? Was he getting tested daily? All those things the NFL say they're doing, are they actually doing them? Because I got a feeling it's like the, the, the NFL's drug testing policy where, you know, everybody in the world knows how to get around it and they catch one person a year so they can say that they do. It'll be interesting to see, but, you know, as a society, at the same time, you know, there's Aaron Rodgers and then the the absolute tragedy, not of Henry Ruggs, but of the woman he killed, you know, going 150 in his Corvette while drunk and, and killing someone. This is a guy with unlimited potential and a bad decision leads to someone's death. You know, the, the NFL's hopefully there's going to be consequences for their actions commensurate to the severity, but we'll see. The NFL players have a way of uh, avoiding those consequences. Yeah. Slightly cheerier subject in the last few minutes that we have. Not very cheery maybe for Oakland A's fans, but Bob Melvin will now be managing the Padres. I was very surprised that there was no compensation involved there when Arguably the best manager in baseball was just told, okay, see ya. Yeah, I think it was one of those things. And and news that he talked to the Mets uh, surprised me as well. I think they decided that maybe he wasn't coming back. Ever since Moneyball and the way that was all portrayed, whether the truth is is along these lines is far different, of course. But they've undervalued managers because they're replaceable. So were they at a point where they thought, you know, we love Melvin, but we're probably not going to bring him back next year. Do we let him interview for a couple jobs that are out there? And it's one of those situations where I think they, because the relationship that they had, that they had somebody in mind. I think the job is staying internal. If it's not Mark Kotze, I'll be really surprised. So I think it was just one of those things where they knew they weren't going to bring him back in a year. Why not let him look? And if something happens, great. He moves on, we move on. That's what I think happened. So it it was sort of one of those, hey, you've been great for us. Maybe you'll be great for somebody else. And it works out for both parties. So we'll see. That may not be how it happened at all. It may be that he forced his way out. You know, does he not want to be involved in uh, all the stadium controversy? Did they tell him, hey, we're probably going to have to cut salary again? Tons of things that, that could have gone into that, but that's that's my sense from talking to people around the game. Yeah, if my memory serves me correct, and maybe it doesn't because this is a baseball winter meetings memory where everything mm-hmm. is, becomes very foggy by the end of the week. But I think that I met Mark Kotze and Craig Council at the same time mm-hmm. at the winter meetings near the bar, near one of the bars, before yep. Council became the Brewers manager. Uh, he, he was in the front office at the time. Yeah, I, I, I met Craig when he was a player. And one of the best stories I have involves him looking at hitting. Next time I come on, I'll tell you the whole story because it's a long one. But I, I think Kotze is much the same thing. I think these younger managers, even though they don't have the experience of a Dusty Baker or a Brian Snicker, they're so close to the players that if what the job really entails is managing those players psychologically, and in some cases physically, that you know, they're better equipped for it. And we've seen some success in that, and we've seen some, some failures in that. But guys like Kotze and Council and A.J. Hinch, Council and Hinch have both been in front offices. Uh, Kotze is kind of, he, he hasn't had that specific role, but has been very involved with the front office as well. So uh, I think that's the fit, though. Certainly, certainly they, they have to at least look around. You know, obviously, Ron Washington's got to be one of the names that, that comes up there. Yeah, Alex Cora fits into the you know the list that you just mentioned. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Young smart guys. I do want to ask you one more thing, which is you have got a book coming out, I believe next year. So, yeah. Let's give us a snap, give readers, listeners, whatever we're talking about here, our consumers of this podcast a snapshot of the book. Yeah, it's called The Science of Baseball, and I'm not a scientist any more than I am a doctor, but so what I did is the same thing as always. I, I, nobody had written this book in a while. This isn't the physics of baseball by Adair, by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, this is more to get people thinking. I hope that kids, you know, the older kids, will pick this up and take a look at it. But just how much science affects everything from the ball, the bat, how is the field set up, 
how does science get involved? And so there's a ton in there about analytics, and obviously there's going to be a lot about physical uh, things and injuries and, and recoveries and doctors. But there is so much science at the heart of baseball. And like every other book I've done, nobody else had written it. So I guess I had to. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, the Science of Baseball, I believe, is is the title. Yeah, coming out in uh, February, spring training-ish. I don't know the exact date. Ish. Yes, spring training, and hopefully spring training starts on time. I don't think we have anywhere near the time to, you know, mm. to touch that. Yeah. So, Will, let me close by saying thank you for coming on to Fangraphs Audio. Absolutely. Anytime, Dave. Welcome to another segment of Dan and Ben Talk Baseball. I'm Ben Clemens, a writer for Fangraphs, and I'm joined by Dan Zimborski, also a writer for Fangraphs. How's it going, Dan? It's going well. How are you doing today, Benjamin? If if you are Benjamin, uh, not like a Benford or a Bennington. I am a Benjamin. I guess Benedict, maybe? I've, Benedict I've known a Ben who is a Benedict. I think Benedict, you become Benny for some reason. I don't I don't know the whole it's, it's a rich tapestry. <laughs> You could be you could be Bennington, Bennington Clemens. It's a rich tapestry is a great way of just saying I don't need to explain any more about this. Yeah, it's it's one of those magic phrases like I digress that you just kind of that allows you to derail it. And I digress allows you to put things back on track. Yeah, but I digress. How about those breaks? Yeah, that was that, that was, was a fun. poor transition. But here no, we are. Th- but it was a tra- it was a good I think it was a good transition because the Braves <laughs> Braves are a fun team. And I was happy to see them win the World Series. In large part because they weren't supposed to, because you talked about all season, you, you would talk about the, the World Series contenders, you know, the Dodgers and and the Astros and and the Giants and for part of a season and then suddenly not anymore. The Padres, those were teams <laughs> that you talked about as as World Series and in and the Braves were like, oh, they'll win the NL East if the Mets blow up and do stupid things. Yeah, I would say they were maybe co-favorites with the Mets because the odds of that happening weren't low. Yeah, they were the spare date on an 80s sitcom where the person has made dates with two girls or boys at once. Yeah, I do want to say our, we were a little low on them, relatively speaking. I think relative to kind of public markets and other prediction uh, sites. Which, which is good because, you see, they actually have reason to complain. Because, you know, there was all the Nationals. We were against the, the odds. Right. We were super high on the Nets. Yeah, their probability to make the playoffs, the lowest it ever got to was like 22%. When they're like 10 games below 500, yeah. Yeah, 20, like something that had a 22% chance of happening happened. Un, unheard of. That's like that one in five time I won the lottery. Yeah, like I think we were like a little low on the Braves and they did better than that. But this was heck of a run yeah and there were and there were reasons to be skeptical about them now people are always like well you you're dismissing them it's like no it's a compliment to tell someone that they exceeded what we thought they could do that they performed better than what yeah like like if i ran like a hundred meter dash in 10 seconds (laughs) yeah i I know this is a little yeah this is let's just assume that for the sake of the of the analogy that would be impressive it wouldn't be like Oh, you were underrating him before, huh? Like, no, that fat <laughs> yeah, guy Dan is fast. Sixteen seconds in my book. Yeah, my hundred meter dash is eventually. <laughs> I don't know, and yet I think that's one of the great things about baseball is you watch that series and the Braves just played better. It's not like they they fluked their way into a win; they just beat the Astros. They they pitched yeah. better and they hit better. Yeah, and the Orioles could have done that a little less likely than the Braves, well, but the but the Orioles could have literally done that. They could have they could have won. I'm not sure they could have pitched better. They they don't really have the pitchers for that. The Orioles can outexist anyone in a lot of baseball games. It's just a matter of existing. Like remember the Orioles swept the Red Sox to open the season, and the Red Sox were close to making the World Series. Yeah, exactly. The Red Sox were a great team and also a team that lost a lot to a lot of bad teams. Yeah, that's just how baseball works. I actually think that's quite cool. Yeah, people people get on me. They're always like, oh, I bet you're mad that your projection was wrong or something low probability happened. And you're like, no, why Why would I? If, well, one, I'm, you know, I'm projecting, you know, when you see a projection for a player, that's like the 50 percentile mark. You expect, you know, 10% of players to hit their 90th percentile, 10% right. to fall short of their 10th percentile. So you expect to be wrong. And it's fun to be wrong. For a couple of reasons, from a practical sense, when you're wrong, 
you learn things. You don't learn things from being right. And two, if it wasn't if if baseball was like super predictable, yeah, I would it would be more profitable for me personally, but it would make my job kind of boring. I don't want to have perfect predictions. That would suck. Right. But like, oh, I would just I would essentially just make a ton of money on Vegas one year and then I would never do it again because who cares yeah. then? Well, you would never make any money again? Well, I'd make enough money that I didn't have to deal with it anymore. I see. I guess that makes sense. Yeah. You just uh Yeah, if you have magic really predictions hard. like when when like when Biff Tannen got the sports almanac of the future, he didn't just bet like three hundred dollars for the year. I mean, you saw his 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 Vegas Empire or wherever they were in uh two thousand oh god. Here's here's the part where I remember that that that, that movie was set in two thousand fifteen. It was set in 2015? Yeah. No remember, way. Because the first movie was in 85, and he went 30 years into the past to 1955. That's when, crazy. In, then in the future, he went 30 years to the future in 2015. See, that's one of the problems of aging is that we have passed a lot of the of the years in the future. Yeah, 2001 is Space yeah, Odyssey. Yeah, 2001 is gone. Back to the Future 2015 is gone. If you've ever played Super Baseball 2020 on, on Super Nintendo, we're supposed to have like robots in the game and like glass encased audiences and and we don't we don't have any of that. We just had a lot of coughing and, and vaccinations, <laughs> which is way less cool a game. If they had if they had made that game in nineteen ninety, I don't think anyone would have bought the true baseball twenty twenty game. Yeah, that's true. It would be quite miserable. Yeah, you I mean you'd have you know like no fans in the crowds, no you would have like a mini game where you have to get tested for covid worst game ever <laughs> and like e we're even catching up to some star trek dates for example for deep space nine fans there was an, a two-part episode dealing with what they called the bell riots and that was when kind of uh poverty had overtaken the united states and there were internment camps for the unemployed and uh, a man named gabriel bell did it and then after the protest things changed after a riot and and Cisco went back in time to be Bell. That's that's the whole thing. And it opened yeah. up like the new age for the world. And we're coming up on that date too. We're coming up on everything. In Deep Space Nine, the final year of baseball was like it's like twenty years from now. Yikes. That's kind of scary. Yeah, I'm not gonna be retired in twenty years. So that that's very alarming. Yeah, what what will we do with our lives? Football graphs. That was a classic effectively wild question. How long will baseball go on for? Or like will baseball be around in a hundred years? I don't know. I think it will be, but it might be more niche by then. Yeah. That, I mean, I think everything will be no, more niche by then. Yeah. I mean, every interest is more niche. I mean, rock music is more niche today. Every interest that was big in like 1980 is more fractured today. Oh, man. That is very true. And it's just going to completely niche us up as we move forward. You're listening to Tech Futurism Podcast. I was going to say, what are we actually talking about? <laughs> We're on this talking podcast? about the Atlanta Braves. Right. Yeah. In the future, we won't have the tomahawk shot, probably. Ah. Mm, you know, or a better every team will have adopted it. God, dystopian future. Or there'd be a worse one. Yeah. That'd be bad. Imagine you went back in time to the 1990 Braves and you stopped the tomahawk chop and then you came back to the present in the in the time machine and it was something much worse. Yeah, time machines always dangerous. Don't yeah. use them. Don't, Get rid yeah. of the chop. Fix fix your future the hard way. But I would say more notable than the chop, which I know was kind of taking up a lot of baseball discourse this postseason and annoyingly so, it should just be gone, was how happy I am for a lot of these Atlanta players. Like this was a really fun team. Like, just across the board. Yeah, I'm a lot of fun guys. I think of a player who I didn't kind of have fun watching this playoffs. Yeah, I mean, you can say, I mean, he wasn't on the roster. You can say having a Zuna on the roster isn't too much fun anymore for obvious yeah. reasons. But it was nice to see because if I, I think Freddie Freeman will be back in Atlanta, it would just be too dumb on the Braves' part not to just give him what he wants. Yeah. And I think he's more valuable to the Braves than anyone. I expect he'll be back as well. But if he's not, and when you go into free agency, anything can happen. This was a great way to send him off because when when the Braves started rebuilding in the mid-2010s, he was the guy they chose to keep. He was the guy that said, no, we're going to trade all these guys, but Freddie Freeman, he is part of our future. So we are going to keep him and he will be around for the next great Braves team. And he was. He has a World Series. Yeah. And he got to, you know, his, if this was his last at bat with the Braves, he he got to do it with a home run in the World Series. So 
So that's that's it's good good script writing. I agree. Very good script writing. I think the only thing that would have made it better is if they had somehow like if Swanson had gotten hurt and so they had to trade for Andleton Simmons. Yeah, I get a few more of those uh that that class of Braves extensions, Kimbrell and Simmons and Freeman. It is really a nice uh an arc. They fulfilled Chekhov's first baseman. Right. You have the first baseman in the first act, so you have to use him in the third act. Right. And there's lots of teams where I don't really enjoy their arc. The Astros is an arc I have not particularly <laughs> enjoyed. Uh, <laughs> let's just pick one at random who's yeah, playing the, the Astros. The Houston Astros were caught cheating, but now they're going to overcome that cheating by right. winning. Whereas the Braves built up over time and they had adversity this year with Acuna getting hurt. Yeah. And you can dislike the corporate entity that owns the team all you want, but they're not playing the games. The players playing the games like had a had just tons of good stories. And Matzik basically came back from the brink. I mean, beyond the brink, he came back from past the brink, having fallen all the way down, and came back and anchored a World Series winning bullpen. Yeah, it was a lot of fun to watch this team. The way they reacted, because I was one of the people that when Acuna went down. I thought this team was dead. I did not see them as having enough depth in the outfield to be able to patch that up. When they acquired Jock Peterson, I thought there would be a good chance that Jock Peterson would be traded again at the trade deadline. But that didn't happen. Uh, Alex Anthopoulos pretty much rebuilt the outfield on the fly. None of these were huge blockbuster acquisitions, but it worked. And we got Jocktober. Yeah. Every year, I feel like we say corner outfield bats are too cheap basically you know they don't cost enough to acquire in the trade market because there's a glut of them but Anthopoulos just took advantage of that and there was a glut of them so he just acquired them all for very low fire sale prices and said man you know what this will this will kind of work as a patch it's I think very smart executiving to say hey there is this mispriced asset which I would argue it is you know players aren't assets but people are not demanding a lot for their corner outfielders in trade and so when you pick up Adam Duvall and Jock Peterson and Eddie Rosario for, I mean, basically nothing, right? Yeah, they gave up no player that's likely to come back and haunt them. Yeah. I also I also think first basemen are probably undervalued in the market. I, I don't think C.J. Cron is a star, but I think that there were teams that could have used him this season. And I don't think you should be out-clevered by the Rockies. Yeah, I mean, there's something to be said for the fact that these people aren't very uh, hard to get in trade because there are a lot of them. There are, there are a lot of people who can kind of do what C.J. Cron does. But that doesn't mean that it's not... Like, if there's a lot of supply of something, if that thing is valuable to your team, you should still get it. <laughs> yeah. You know, if I told you, hey, you know, gas is only a dollar a gallon now, so, like, trading for gas is at dollar twenty-five a gallon is a sucker's move. Well, if you need gas, like, it's great, yeah, you, it's cheap. you still have to gas up the car. You still have to gas up the car, and it's cheap. It's like, how can you lose? Oh, I let me tell you, let me tell you, young one. I remember when I got it was nineteen ninety nine, and I got gas for ninety seven cents outside North Carolina. Oh yeah, I remember vividly getting gas under a dollar in the early two thousands when there was a price war going on in Harrisonburg, Virginia. Not that the story is interesting at all, but it's it's interesting to me. I now it's been told. I got I got that was the last time I got one dollar gas. And, you know, I drove a I drove a Ford Tempo at the time, so I needed all the help I can get because there was a, <laughs> when you drive a Ford Tempo three states, there's a chance you're going to need a new car at some point on your route. So those savings are helpful. Yeah, I guess the uh, the fill up twenty dollars every time you stop wouldn't really work then because there's no chance you could put twenty dollars of gas in at a dollar a gallon. Yeah, it used to be, you know, give a 20, fill it up. You Like 20, like, okay, that, that's f four gallons or five gallons, I guess, depending on what state you're in. Uh, I I had a friend like when we uh, when we were kids that he was the first one who had a car of us because he was a year older than us. And whenever he'd drive you anywhere, no matter how far it was, he would demand a dollar from everybody in the car, which seemed like a lot at the time. But now it, it'd be like he'd get a pretty bad deal today. Yeah, that's true. Now, speaking of gas prices, Ooh, go on. how do you feel about how Atlanta covered when their pictures were out of gas by losing Charlie Morton? Oh, that was, that was wow. Spectacularly well done, Dan. I'm going to break the smoothness of it by remarking on how good it was. I thought that the Braves did almost exactly what I would have done. And I don't know if that's good, but I think it is. And when I wrote about a potential script for what the Braves should do in games three, four, and five, they followed it very faithfully. And I think it was pretty close to the theoretical optimal. Yeah, they. it was, it was a good bit of managerial 
managing. I don't have another another word for it. So this this was Brian Snicker's, uh, I think, his career highlight, the way he, he handled the series. Yeah, I don't think that the Morton injury was as devastating to their chances as people made out at the time. He's only going to make one more start. I don't actually think he was going short rest, short rest. That doesn't make so much sense. But it was, you know, one start that had it to be filled in with some bad players. And I think a lot of managers would have fallen prey to basically fear. Just say, you know, I have 14 pitchers on my roster, but there are six of them that I'm never going to use. So, like, put those guys in a glass box and just overwork everyone else until we get it done. And I think Snitker did a really good job saying, look, I need to manufacture 27 innings in three days. And I can't use, I can't make 25 innings out of Tyler Matzik. So how do I do it? And he just, he did it right. It would be fun to see, though, the, the Tyler Matzik universe. He just, he just keeps throwing until, uh, until he's out of gas and then he keeps throwing. But no, we had we had Max Fried in his lesser start. He gave him extra innings. They did not pull him quickly. They got they got good innings from from Kyle Wright. They did a really good job there. Now, yeah. before we, there's, there's another story we had to talk about. Now we were talking about you know goodbye to Freddie Freeman in Atlanta possibly, but there's another goodbye. Buster Posey of the San Francisco Giants announced his retirement. Now that was a surprise to people, but you know he has interests outside of baseball. I believe, if I'm not mistaken, him and his wife adopted twins last year, and that was one of the reasons he he opted out of the COVID season. So I guess maybe with the benefit of hindsight, it might not be as surprising. Uh, But so how do you feel? Uh, There were a lot of very positive writers talking about Posey in the Hall of Fame after he announced his retirement, more than I expected, because I'm going to be a yes vote for him, but I'm more willing to vote for Peak, I believe, than most writers. One could make the case by going out on top like this and so to speak, that maybe he cemented the memory of him as a star rather than struggling for, you know, five years or something like like uh, Albert Pujols or other players I won't name. So how do you how do you feel about Posey, his Hall of Fame candidacy and and his decision to step out? I guess we'll take it one by one. I think his decision to step out makes a lot of sense when you look at it that way, that this was a tremendous season to go out on. I don't know that he's going to have a another more fulfilling season in his career. He ha- he's had plenty before now, but this was a you know a stunning return to prominence. He was awesome. He showed that he still has it. The Giants had a magical run, and catching is exhausting on your body, and it's taken a toll on him. And like you said, he's just adopted twins. A lot of things are lining up to go out on top. I think that makes a lot of sense. If I'm a Giants fan, I'd be sad because he's been the best player of this generation for them. But I'd also be really happy that, man, what a great career. And you watched all of Buster Posey's career. And they were really good from, you know, basically start to finish of his time there with a little lag in the middle. But even then, they were fun to watch and he was fun to watch. As the Hall of Fame goes, I I would put him in. He was very clearly one of the best five players in baseball for, you know, the better part of a decade as a catcher. That's really hard to do. And I know some people will say that a lot of that is framing, but if you say, I mean, there's there's a reasonable argument to make that that perhaps the magnitude of, of framing numbers are too high, uh, and maybe you should, you know, not emphasize them quite as much because of the uncertainty and the volatility. But even if you take off, you know, half of his framing numbers, he still looks like a very easy Hall of Fame choice. Uh, it, it'll be interesting to see how voters treat him and Joe Maurer. Yeah, I'm I'm very curious to see how people treat him because it won't be a traditional Hall of Fame case. No, it won't be. It's 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 one where he's walking away, but he's not walking away like from tragedy. Right. He's walking away not from tragedy. He's 34, and I think he only played 11 seasons. Uh, he played well. He had 17 plate appearances in a 12th. Yeah, so 11 seasons basically. Yeah, and that's that is a little on the light end for somebody who didn't have a completely over the top peak. But he's also but a catcher. He's also a catcher, exactly. And his peak was pretty great. Like that- it wasn't Mike Trout, but it wasn't that far behind. And yeah, a lot of that is framing. And so if you look at you know Baseball Reference WAR, which I would say excludes framing because they don't measure it, not because they don't think it matters. Then you might dock him a little bit, but he's one of the best catchers of our generation. And if you want to reward the best players of your generation by putting him in the Hall of Fame, he should be in the Hall of Fame. There is someone hammering very loud. Yeah, I heard a chainsaw a minute ago, I thought, or a circular saw. I hear a hammer. Is someone trying to murder you? 
Like, is they trying to like saw into your house and yeah, and beat you, you to death? You can't hear, because... but I'm very, very subtly keeping them away from me all the you're, time. You're you're very cool under pressure. No, my next door neighbor just sold their apartment, and I assume the people who have moved in are I don't know, uh, constructing a torture dungeon. Maybe you have to be careful because they might be annexing your area. It is. <laughs> It is true that the next apartment over is already an annex. It has annexed another apartment. So maybe I'm next on the list. Because you you can do that subtly. Like, I wonder if I started moving my neighbor's fence closer to his house, like, every time they were gone, like, a couple inches. I wonder how long it would be before they noticed that I've, that I've annexed some of their territory. A friend of mine went to basically redo their backyard. They bought a house, and the backyard was kind of gross and... They tore it all down, put up some new, not grass, because it's in LA, so you don't really want to put up grass, but some new, like, nice backyard fixtures. And in doing so, they looked at the planning and realized that, like, three and a half feet of their yard, kind of all the way down, was in their neighbor's yard by fencing. Like, the neighbors had just fenced in three and a half feet of backyard of theirs. Yeah, I don't even know who to call if someone's, like... Oh, yeah, I don't know what's going to happen about it. <laughs> yeah, like, I, I, I'm not sure what you do in that situation. I have a... You see, the neighbor behind me, he's the one who thinks I'm a drug dealer. He, he told other neighbors he wondered if I dealt drugs for a living. Because I guess I'm always around the house and I tend to wear a lot of gym clothes without going to the gym. But what if he, one day, he annexes the back corner of my yard where all the wooded area is and he, he annexes my shed? I don't think I call the police and say I've been invaded. <laughs> my sh- he's stolen my my territory. He has crossed the border. Uh, I mean, do I call a zoning board? Write in and to give your answer if you have an idea. All right. On that note, I do need to figure out what the heck is going on over here because I can now see people in my backyard over the fence with uh, saws and hammers. So I need to see if I need to do anything. Okay, well, while Ben is defending his territory against foreign invaders, I just want to thank everyone for joining us today. Uh, We've been Dan Zaborski and Ben Clemens. And, you know, we have a lot more coming up on Fangraphs.com in coming weeks, even without a season. So make sure to check back. And if you have the wherewithal and the interest, consider subscribing, because if there's a strike, it's going to be a cold off season. This has been Fangraphs Audio. Thank you to Will Carroll for joining us. And like Dan said, if you want to help us out, head over to that Fangraphs.com shop and take a look at our merch and ad-free memberships. Or consider signing up for our newsletter. It's free, and the best way to keep up on all the cool stuff we have going on all throughout the year. Thank you for listening. We'll talk to you next week.